Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Howard French. He is a professor of journalism at Columbia University and a former New York Times bureau chief for the Caribbean and Central America, for West and Central Africa, and for Tokyo and Shanghai. His latest book is Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. I'm joined by 19 of my Harvard classmates. Hello, Professor French. Thank you for clarifying you're in New York City. I'm in Rochester, New York, where the weather goes from 40 in the morning, 70 at noon, and 40 in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, it, they say it's going to be 80 in New York City today. Wow. <laughs> I've, I've had, I'm looking forward to the presentation very much. I've had a lifelong interest in Africa, starting with two trips I made over there. Spent a couple of years traveling around. I hitchhiked from Tanzania to Cape Town and then hitchhiked roads, train roads, sailboats from Cape Town to Cairo. And uh, also uh, my roommate, one of my roommates, uh, well, one of them, Adam Hochschild, has written a good deal about the Congo. But my other roommate was Aikwe Arma. You guys probably knew George Arma. Yeah. Who uh, is a, uh, you know, a leading African novelist from Ghana, lives in Senegal. His novels are about the, uh, you know, thousands of years of African history. <clears throat> so, all right, looking forward to it. Let okay. me, can I cause you all uh, to say, so you've told me a little bit about yourselves, but you haven't really told me anything about your professional or academic or any other, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that side of your life. That, <laughs> yeah. That'd be very, that would be very interesting to me. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Let me, let me just add, I, I'm an editor and writer and I live in New Hampshire. Uh, one novel that I wrote uh, was about pre-revolutionary Zimbabwe. Uh, the settler regime in Rhodesia. It's available on Amazon called The Angels of Zimbabwe. Okay. Okay. Uh, George Allen. Hey there. Uh, I uh, am in this group. I was a uh, roommate uh, in the college with uh, the late Fred Easter and Hobie Armstrong, uh, both of whom were profiled in Kent's book. I'm a semi-retired uh, trial lawyer, mostly federal court civil litigation. All right, uh, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City and uh, am working on a huge archives project to try to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history on major resource allocation battles. <clears throat> Hi, I'm uh, Ann Huberman. I'm in the class of 63 also, and a retired academic librarian and now a climate activist uh, in Peterborough. We have a goal of 100% renewable energy by 2050, electricity by 2030 in Peterborough. Okay, Jerry. 
Good morning. Uh, I guess the highlight of my life was to be in Kent's book. Uh, maybe the <laughs> maybe the downside is I'm a lawyer. So and after law school, I went into the Peace Corps, Cusco, Peru, for a couple of years. Joined the Department of Justice uh, for a while as an environmental lawyer. Worked for an oil company. Worked for the government. Worked for a nonprofit. Headed up Audubon, California. Uh, was the vice chair of the State Water Resources Control Board. Then was president of a nonprofit trade association of business, labor, and environmentalists, and now do environmental consulting, especially in the water arena. All righty. And uh, John and uh, Lisa. Oh, hi. Um, class of 63, retired, living in Ann Arbor, and uh, looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say. Okay. <laughs> hello, to you, hello to you, by the way. Yeah, hi. He said hi. Oh, hi. John. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've worked here at the University of Michigan putting out, a, putting out an alumni publication for a lot of years. And before that, I was at um, papers ranging from Muhammad Speaks, where I was editor <clears throat> in chief, to uh, New York Times National Copy Desk and Chicago Sun Times, New Haven Register, et cetera. Okay. You're also a twin, aren't you? And a twin, right. <laughs> Bill. Yeah, Bill Collins, live in Aiken, South Carolina, where summer is slowly coming. Um, Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, nuclear power, then worked for Westinghouse, <clears throat> building and operating plants to burn municipal garbage in a clean way. <clears throat> at the Savannah River site to help clean up nuclear waste and now retired from doing all that. Great believer in nuclear power as the best environmentally sound large-scale generation of electricity. Okay. Interesting topic. I would like to talk to you about it if we had time. I, I teach. Uh, I mean, I teach journalism mostly, but I also teach public policy, and we get into nuclear power. And yeah, good. good. We yeah, won't have great. time for that today, but I just you know by way of introduction. All right, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, live outside of Boston, same class, 63, from 63, went to Harvard Business School a couple of years, then went to India for a couple of years in the Peace Corps, uh, um, working with small companies, business that, like that, came back to Boston, spent most of my time with uh, manufacturing companies or investments, but also along the way, spent some time in Haiti, and working with an organization in New York uh, called the International Peace Academy. Uh, at the time, a fellow named Olara Otunu was running it and uh, <clears throat> got in touch with Kofi Annan and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I, uh, well, that's about it. Leave it there. <laughs> okay, Dorothy. Hi, everybody. Let me do this. Um, class of 63. Uh, I didn't make it to Angola to fight against the Portuguese for the Angolan revolution, but I did make it to the Harlem Action Group. Uh, my also friend, Aikwe Arma, and his, my roommate, Emmy Schroeder, did go to Africa. Uh, much later, when I went to visit uh, uh, Ghana, I went to see Arma, and, but my friend and I got arrested and ended up in prison because we jumped over the wall around uh, the palace. So not knowing what we were doing. <laughs> I, I ran uh, Youth Build uh, for 40 years, and that was a, is and continues in 250 communities in another 80 countries, including several in Africa. And I went to South Africa um, after 
a while after 9-11 to help get it set up in South Africa. So that's sort of my history. And Youth Build is a, a comprehensive program for young people who left high school without a diploma, who grew up in poverty, who are searching for uh, completing their education and building affordable housing in their community for their neighbors and becoming leaders. And uh, it's been a great life. And right now I'm considering starting something called um, Elders United for a New Economy. And I will be interested in whether any of you think that's a good idea when we get time. Okay. All right. Alden. Um, well, I've had a rather checkered career. I uh, taught for a few years at uh, junior high school and elementary school. Uh, then I did manpower training programs, getting unemployed and unemployed people into jobs. And uh, then I was in the private sector, human resource information systems. The last quarter of a century, I've been doing fundraising consulting. Uh, really, the highlight of my career is that I'm in the same class. I'm not sure that, that I can only say uh, a graduating class, not, not in the same class, with Kent, who has edited 100 of these uh, presentations. <laughs> okay, all right. Jeff. Oh, me? Yeah. Uh, hi. Well, uh, while I was at, I was also Harvard 63, and while I was there, um, my effort to change the world was as president of the Socialist Club, which is, I think, where uh, where I met a, a couple of a couple of our other participants here. Uh, John, I think, uh, and I were, were on a picket line together, and uh, Pete Delisafoy and I were got involved in something, some scrapes together, and um, after that. I've, well, the next, my next attempt to change the world was as a community organizer in Venezuela and in, in the slums of Caracas. Mm -hmm. And after doing that, I figured, well, I better try to understand the world a little better, study sociology, taught that for a long time and um, wrote several things, mostly, mostly on Latin America, uh, uh, several books. And then I finally decided the best way to really understand sociology was not to write for academic publications, but to write fiction, to try to take people into the experience of, uh, well, uh, into several experiences. I, I mean, and this is given, this has produced short stories. Uh, so far, two novels. I'm working on another one now. Okay. Uh, I live in Southern Spain. Liz. Hi, um, I'm also class of 63. I'm a almost completely retired clinical psychologist. I've lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland for the last 15 years, but I identify as a Californian. I'm a graduate of Hollywood High School and lived in Fresno for close to 30 years. Um, and have never spent significant amounts of time out of the country, although I worked for World Teach, which was out of Phillips Brooks House as a 50 year old uh, and spent five months in Namibia. And in Namibia, and we'll right. be coming back uh, in a few weeks to see the child who was six then get married. And um, so again, clinical psychology has really been my focus, and uh, I've done a lot of training and teaching as a result of that. I have a very quick question. I, I, I want to be mindful of time, but I had a conversation with someone about this just yesterday. And what work is the word clinical doing in the phrase clinical psychology? It means we see clients. We see clients. That's what it means. Okay. Yeah. As, okay. as opposed to an academic psychologist, <clears throat> an industrial psychologist. Of, Got it. I'm also the descendant of enslavers in Charlottesville and I'm working to understand more about that and writing about that. 
So am I. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> in, in and around Charlottesville. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, we have something to talk about. Okay. Right. Doug. Uh, hi, I live in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, although I haven't uh, uh, spent a lot of time in Africa, I've been there a number of times for various meetings and conferences. My most significant period was living uh, for three months on a, uh, a a small platform which had been constructed by a bunch of Cambridge undergraduates out of scaffolding material. It was right on top of a coral reef. It was 10 miles south of Port Sudan and three miles offshore. George. George Jones, class of 63, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And at 1219, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> David Othmer. David, David Othmer uh, grew up in South and Central America, went to the business school as Nick did after after Harvard and I've spent most of my career in public broadcasting in New York City and here in Philadelphia where Maureen and I have lived for 30 some years. All right, Hamp. Um, <clears throat> class of 63, uh, like Jerry, the highlight of my book, uh, of my life was having a cameo uh, appearance in Kent's book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I live in Nashville. I, I am a clinical psychologist. And I think clinical means that you're ready to cope with uh, people being psychotic or or manic, unlike uh, counseling psychologists. Ezra. I, I'm a retired uh, professor of psychiatry at uh, the Yale School of Medicine. Okay. Psychiatry, you said. Psychiatry, yes. Okay, so that but at least four psychiatrists in there, or psychologists, psychiatrists in the group, I, I gather. <laughs> yes, right, right. And Professor, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on and tell us about your life, your book. Um, so I teach journalism at Columbia University uh, Graduate School of Journalism and have done that since 2008. Uh, uh, for the previous um, 22 years, I worked for the New York Times, almost all of which was spent outside of the United States as a what uh, a kind of a funny term, but foreign correspondent. Um, uh, I was um, based uh, in four different regions of the world during that time. Uh, I'll cite them in order. I covered the Caribbean and Central America and the northern tier of South America in my first assignment for them. I covered uh, uh, West and Central Africa in my second assignment for them. I covered um, uh, Northeast Asia, meaning Japan uh, and the Koreas uh, in my third assignment for them. And I covered China uh, in the fourth assignment for them. Uh, before being a correspondent for the Times, I was a freelance reporter in uh, West Africa for several years. That's where I began my journalism. Um, I began visiting West Africa as a college student because my parents had moved to Ivory Coast when I was entering college. My father was a, 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 a surgeon who underwent a sort of mid-career uh, rebirth as a public health physician and um, uh, decided to get into international public health and ended up designing and leading a major 20-country uh, project under the auspices of uh, the World uh, Health Organization that covered West and Central Africa in which he sought to reinforce primary healthcare systems. And so this was my initiation to New Africa. I 
after college, I moved to the region, to Ivory Coast, stayed on there for six years, became a journalist, got married, started a family, uh, and uh, got onto the road that leads me to you today. Um, uh, I uh, am the author of a bunch of different books now. Uh, the list is up to five, and I'm sort of knee-deep in my sixth book. Um, uh, the fifth book, which I think is the sort of proximate uh, topic for us today is um, was out uh, came out a little more than a year ago and is called Born in Blackness Africa Africans plural and the making of the modern world 1471 to the Second World War uh, and the thesis of the book is um, to be really really brief and simple about it that um, almost everything you have learned you, this highly educated group of people I'm, I'm communing with here today about the birth of the modern world is, is almost certainly wrong or is almost certainly um, off base. Not everything is factually wrong in what you've learned, but the stories have been uh, improperly centered. Uh, and uh, the centering that I propose in this book and that I argue for at great length, uh, 600 pages or so, of, uh, 500 more than 500 pages, 600 years of history, more or less, um, uh, of, of global history, uh, uh, has a kind of um, uh, a, a certain a, a kind of narrative thread that starts from the birth of modernity to uh, the westward expansion of the United States and it places um, uh, in and in between those two uh, that starting point and the ending point of the book we have the birth of the West and what do I mean by the birth of the West the West is a term that gets used uh, with uh, enormous um, uh, uh, imprecision and lack of attention to meaning uh, it's just a we you know it's in every kind of conversation all the time without us ever really pausing to understand it. Um, uh, and it makes a lot of assumptions. Uh, I define the West for the purposes of my book as a kind of economic and political condominium between Atlantic facing Europe and what was once uh, uninhibitedly called the new world. Uh, and that the Atlantic facing Europe took over the new world uh, by way of uh, uh, <clears throat> a genocide of the inhabitants of the new world uh, and that this takeover and this, uh, I've never found a word in English that does uh, quite as well as the French word that I know for what I want to say. So I'm gonna use the French word and then I'll try to translate it into English. But the, the, the genocide of the native population of the Americas was followed up by the um, transplantation uh, of millions of Africans in chains to the new world where they were put to labor under two new uh, economic and social institutions that I think are the absolute crux of the modern age. And they are uh, plantation style production of commodities and chattel slavery. Uh, and I argue that it is these two institutions. In fact, I argue the greatest, the greatest innovations in modern economic history, as terrible as they were, as horrible as they were, um, were responsible for, and here comes the French word, making the new word rentable, uh, to spell it, it's rentable. Rentable, uh, rentable in French means economically viable, which is, I guess, the sort of uh, uh, less elegant way of saying it in, in English. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is by up until the year 1820, or by the year 1820, um, 
which is quite recent in this timeline that I've established from 1471 to, to the near present, um, four times as many people were brought across the Atlantic from Africa than from Europe. Uh, uh, just pause and think about what this, what the implications of this are for the sort of common um, uh, storylines by which we are led to understand our history. We have the founding fathers and we have Plymouth Rock and we have Protestant work ethic and we have the industrial revolution and we have, you know, um, uh, give me liberty and give me death. And we have, you know, all of these uh, very famous, deeply embedded primary stories that we are we have all been brought up uh, with, right? Which are meant to sort of frame and to form our idea of how the West was created, um, how this country in particular was created, but around the creation of this country, how the West, more broadly speaking, was created. And in the telling of those stories, somehow we have typically, in almost every public education instance that I'm familiar with, cut Africa out of the picture. Even though up until 1820, as I said, four times as many people were brought across the Atlantic from Africa than from Europe. And let's imagine, just for um, a rhetorical sake, um, uh, that uh, Africans and Europeans who crossed the Atlantic did the exact same kind of work, worked under the exact uh, um, same uh, conditions of duress um, uh, and at the same rates of productivity, right? None of those things are true, but let's just posit them to have been true, right? For a moment, for just for 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 rhetorical purposes, just for a minute. That means, in fact, that the United States, up until 1820, was created uh, four times more by people brought from Africa than people who were brought from Europe. That is entirely and radically at odds with the picture that we have been encouraged to under to 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 believe or to. Um, to accept about the, the foundation of this country, the creation of the wealth that we all enjoy, the building of the West as this condominium between the New World and, and Atlantic-facing Europe, as I defined it a few minutes ago, right? And so, because of time constraints, and I really do have to stop at, at 1:15 because I have a, I, I'll have to, I, I've got a very busy afternoon. I've got to get to a meeting at two. Um, so I'm gonna I'm I'm going really really fast with this stuff, but I want to go to the beginning of the history just to help you understand how profoundly off uh, center the traditional narratives about the creation of the West have been. So, or I'm sorry, the creation of modernity. Modernity is of course a contested term. We could spend the rest of our time talking about exactly what modernity means, and we probably would never come to a complete agreement about that. But I'm going to offer a working definition for them for the modern age and the derivative of the idea of a modern age that uh, exists in the word modernity. And I'm going to root the conventional definition of this creation of the modern age and by way of its creation, the birth of modernity, uh, I'm going to situate it in uh, what I think is the traditional storytelling around this. And that is, there's two variants actually, but the most, uh, the primary one is Columbus's discovery of discovery, of course, in quotation marks, Columbus's discovery of the Americas. So this 
according to what we many, I think many, most of you will have learned in elementary or junior high or certainly by high school, and what most everybody in this country and also in Western Europe learns, that this is kind of the beginning of uh, uh, the modern age. The, the, you know, Columbus sails across the Atlantic. He, you know, he, he, was, he, he thought he was going to Asia. Uh, doesn't really matter. He lands in the Bahamas and later in Hispaniola and various other places. And everything is changed forever thereafter. And so we, the traditional storytelling around the birth of the modern age is, 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 is overwhelmingly uh, centered around that. There's a there's a variant. There's an alternate uh, storytelling, which I don't want to dwell upon too much, but it's related. Um, there's another uh, great explorer, quote unquote, who sets off uh, after Columbus, um, uh, Vasco da Gama, who finds a route to India. So um, some people would say, "Oh no, it's actually the modern age begins with that." So it's the it's the it's the discovery of discovery again of, of, of India or of a route to India by Vasco da Gama. Um, and this is what connects everybody. And, 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 and here we are. Every, you know, everything we know and enjoy today and even take for granted flows from those facts, right? What is left out of these two scenarios? So that's what I want to focus on. Um, and to be quick about it, I won't pull the group. I'm going to offer the answer. What's left out of these two stories is Africa. And if you poke around in the history carefully and with an open mind, you mm. will discover, uh, and here I mean discover sincerely, that Africa was, in fact, at the very center of all of these feats, the feat of Columbus discovering, quote unquote, the Americas and da Gama eventually making his way to India. And I'm going to go back to the beginning, as it were, and try to explain what we mean by that. And then we will explore the question of how come none of these things get talked about or recognized or acknowledged or emphasized or, or known, right? Um, so I was put onto the path of this book uh, while working on a previous book, a book about Chinese history. And, and uh, in the research of that book, I was in the library, uh, you know, uh, stacks uh, for uh, very long hours and reading enormous amounts of material and and beautifully uh, in terms of how I experience these sorts of things, making all kinds of unexpected discoveries. So when you're researching a book, hopefully you discover, you find the things you were looking for, right? But if you are luckier, you also find a lot of things you weren't looking for, right? And so when I was researching the book about Chinese history, I, I, that happened to me, right? I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm, uh, the, uh, a central idea of that book is how has China this very long, uh, it's, I don't want to oversimplify here, but uh, continuous civilization as it's often fancied, right? How did they, um, how over time have various Chinese dynasties conceived of their place in the world, right? That's kind of a big question at the center of my previous book. And as I was researching that book, I start reading archivally into the very first encounters uh, between uh, uh, the uh, uh, avatars of the age of exploration, as we are uh, taught to see it, right? Uh, meaning mostly Portuguese, but also eventually Spaniards and, and various other people, right? Um, uh, and the Chinese. And as I began to read through these archives, I start to make an enormous number of totally accidental and unanticipated discoveries. 
uh, uh, the most important of which is that for almost the entire 15th century, the Portuguese had no focus on discovering a path to China. So what are we taught, or to India for that matter. So what, what, what are we taught? We are taught that the age of discovery is all about this hell-bent, completely overriding, almost you know, divine uh, quest, right? A divinely appointed quest to find a maritime route to the East, right? That that was the obsession to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, and therefore, this is why this, the, you know, the, the gamma theory of modernity uh, uh, holds in the minds of some people, because suddenly you're in India and the quest is over. You've achieved this thing you've been dreaming about for so long, right? In the archives, I discover that in fact, the Portuguese, starting from the 1420s, actually there were some there were some interesting efforts before then, but but on a large scale, starting in the 1420s, the Portuguese were not hell bent on finding a way to India or to China. They were hell bent on connecting with Africa, uh, and they are there are decades worth of persistent and absolutely obsessional and devoted and expensive uh, and you know, uh, to repeat myself, just, you know, continuous and persistent efforts to do so, which are totally lost from the conventional tellings that we have all been led to uh, uh, understand about how the modern world was created. And so what happened in the 15th century? That became my mission. Like I bookmarked this in my brain and I said, this doesn't really have a place in the book that I was working on at the time, but there's no way, listen, I've, I've worked as a journalist in all of these parts of the world, I think of myself as a very curious person and a pretty well-read person. How come I didn't know this? And so I bookmarked all these things and you know, just appointed, assigned myself uh, the task of, at the appropriate moment, re-entering this realm of knowledge and, and archival knowledge and figuring out what was going on. The story that I discover is that in, in the opening years of the previous century, the 14th century. This is going to sound fantastical to you all. I hope you'll, I, I don't say this for um, pecuniary reasons. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll want to read my book, right? In the opening years of the 14th century, uh, in West Africa, uh, there was an empire known as Mali, which covers most of Sudanic West Africa, meaning just south of the Sahara Desert, of, of uh, a geographically extensive and culturally accomplished empire. And its ruler of the day in the opening years of the 14th century was a man, Mali was a Muslim empire, was a man named Abu Bakr II. And Abu Bakr II, Mali was a gold superpower. Most of the, Mali was the leading source of gold into Europe in this era. But the Europeans didn't know where the gold came from because the, they knew it came from Africa, but they didn't have any picture of precisely where in Africa it came from. And the reason for that is because the gold was sold mostly via Italy into Europe by uh, Berber kingdoms in uh, Mediterranean Africa, right? And the Berbers obviously had no interest in telling the Europeans where the gold came from, right? And so Europeans knew that Africa was a source of gold, but they knew nothing, little more than that about Africa, right? Portugal was particularly, let me, no, let me stick with Abu Bakr II. So in the first decade of 14th century, Abu Bakr II commissions an expedition of what we think were uh, dozens 
of boats, and I'm calling them boats because they were not tall masted ships. They were, you know, um, uh, uh, dugout boats of perhaps 50 to 75 feet in length, right? To try to cross what for the Mali Empire was called the Great Ocean. Great Ocean's actually a term that had been used in Europe and various other places also. So Mali as this, this empire is a ocean facing, Atlantic Ocean facing empire. And Abu Bakr II gets into his head uh, to try to figure out what exists on the far side of the of the water, right? And so he commissions this expedition. I'm going to guess the year was something like 1306, something like that. Now just think, we've set modern age around 1492, right? Here we are in 1306. You know, Columbus was great. He tried to cross the ocean. Here's an African guy trying to cross the ocean. Um, he commissions this expedition. The boats head out at sea. They're loaded down with gold because he he thinks, well, we don't really know what we're going to find on the other side of the ocean. But if we find civilizations there and centers of wealth and population there, gold is kind of known to be by everybody a store of value and of your your of, of universal uh, you know interest, right? So he loads the boats down with gold. Uh, and most of the boats sink at sea. And the leader of the expedition returns to Mali. He survives and he presents himself to, to the emperor, Abu Bakr II. And he tells the emperor, you know, with great regret, we had a disaster, right? We lost most of the ships. He describes the circumstances. They, they reached a point in the ocean where currents converged, one from the northwest, the other from the southwest, uh, terribly violent, and the, the boats were sunk. Right. The second says, well, that's really unfortunate, but we're not going to stop here. I'm going to commission an even larger expedition, and I'm going to be at the helm this time. I'm going to set out in this expedition at the helm of these boats myself, and we're going to see what we can do. Right. Uh, Abu Bakr the second was never seen again. They set off at sea. He, none of them come back. Right. We don't know what happened, right? I'm assuming my, you know, um, uh, with no information about what happened to them, my the simplest explanation is they were they were lost at sea, right? I don't make any claim that they reached the Americas. There are people who say things like that. I'm not with them, <laughs> right? Uh, these boats were never heard. This expedition was never heard from again. There's no record of them any further, right? Okay. Well, how do we know these things? And what was Abu Bakr II trying to do? I'll approach the first question, <clears throat> the second question first. My theory, thesis, which I develop in the book, is that Abu Bakr II had uh, a picture of Mali's um, leverage and uh, potential power via its great wealth in gold and wanted to eliminate the middlemen meaning the Berber kingdoms of the, of the uh, Mediterranean Africa, from the equation. Uh, he had no way to march into Morocco, what we now call Morocco or, 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 or Algeria, and defeat these people far away from him, right? Um, but maybe he could figure out a way to do an end run around them. Uh, and if they could get across the ocean, and there's, lo and behold, there's civilizations there and places you can trade with there, well, what the hell? That might be really interesting from an economic standpoint, right? This is actually very similar to what Columbus and his sponsors were trying to do. We think of what Columbus and his sponsors was trying to do as kind of 
signal moments in history and hallmarks of European, you know, pluck and ingenuity and enterprise and all these other great things, right? <laughs> um, Abba Bakar II tries this in 1306 or 13, I think the second voyage, I would guess it was a little later, like 1311 or something like that. Anyway, he never, he's never heard from again. So the story doesn't end there. It picks up in 1325 when a successor of Abu Bakr II, a man named Mansa Musa, who has become familiar to kind of popular history and, and urban legend and, 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 and things like that, um, uh, picks up the challenge, right? And he says, I think with very similar motives, I'm not going to set off at sea. Look, you know, Abu Bakr II, we never saw him again. So I'm not going to try that. What I'm going to try to do is engineer a different kind of end run. The end run I'm going to try to engineer is to go to Mecca and to, to Cairo, which was the, uh, the seat of the Mamluk Empire at the time, and from there into to pay pilgrimage uh, uh, in Mecca. And establish a new kind of relationship with the Mamluks that will put Mali on the map as a major player in the Islamic world and set up a circuit of trade in gold from Mali to Egypt, which is which was a much more populous place than Maghreb North than 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 Berber or Maghreb uh, North Africa, right? And 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 just sever our reliance on these middlemen in 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 North Africa and 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 create this new axis. And so, 50, I'm sorry, in 1325, Mansa Musa, now this is a, an abundantly documented event, sets off across the Sahara Desert and travels to Egypt, 3,500 miles, in an enormous convoy of uh, camels and donkeys and you know various other things uh, including many slaves um, uh, and carries with him um, 18 tons of pure gold oh my god mm -hmm. uh, no one before or since has ever been in possession or command of any even remotely comparable amount of gold Mansa Musa shows up in Cairo with 18 tons of gold <laughs> and begins to distribute the gold in acts of religious devotion, in acts of political patronage. He, uh, he delivers, he's, by the way, camped out at the foot of the Great Pyramid. Uh, he um, uh, uh, just, you know, and eventually, I have to be quick about this, eventually he gives away all the gold, all 18 tons of it, to the point where he had to borrow money to get back to Mali. <laughs> okay? Um we know this story, and we know the story of Abu Bakr II, his predecessor, because Mansa Musa receives an audience of the, gover the Mamluk governor of Cairo, in which the Mamluk governor of Cairo, together with his scribes, is interviewing Mansa Musa in an oral historical fashion about the history of the Mali Empire. And Abu Bakr II, I cannot imagine a motive for him to invent, to make this up, right? Tell them the whole story about, you know, my predecessor wanted to get to, he didn't use the word Americas, right? Obviously, but wanted to reach the Americas, right? He wanted to see if there were Americas out there. And, and he launched these two expeditions and it was never seen after the second one, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to come to Cairo and here I am, right? Um, this is written down. I found these documents. I'm not the first one ever to discover them, but I decided to pay attention to them, which most people have never, few people have ever tried to do before, right? In a, in a serious way. Uh, and so what 
are the consequences of this? And what does this have to do with the birth of the modern world? What this has to do with the birth of modern world is that the price of gold, because of the great abundance of gold that he simply gave away uh, in the, I don't know if philanthropy is the right word for this, right? But just in extravagance, right? Uh, in a short period of time, in the space of two years, he gives away, less than two years, gives away 18 tons of gold. It collapses the price of gold in the Eastern Mediterranean. Silver becomes worth five times more than gold. That's almost an exact reversal of the normal historical ratio. Gold is usually worth five times more than silver, right? Nobody needs gold anymore. There's gold everywhere. And so, so the word of, of Mansa Musa and identify, identification of this um, uh, abundance of gold sourced from Mali spreads into Europe very rapidly. Uh, and in fact, the price of gold also begins to decline dramatically in Europe uh, as a result of this. That's how much that, that's how widespread the impact of this was. And this sets a fire uh, on the Portuguese imagination. And this is the spark that creates what we commonly call and mis, uh, mischaracterize as the age of exploration. We mischaracterize it as an attempt to discover a way to India and to China. The age of exploration was in fact born out of desire by the Portuguese for reasons very specific to them to connect to West Africa. The Portuguese were on a mission once they had learned of the story of Mansa Musa to figure out, to become the first to reach Mali and to figure out where the source of this gold uh, comes from and to establish a regular trade connection with Mali. They were not interested, they, they may have been I don't even want to say secondarily, tertially interested in reaching Asia at some point. Surely it was a conversation piece. It was a, would have been a conversation uh, topic for the Portuguese only because Portugal doesn't have a window on the Mediterranean, right? Uh, Portugal is an Atlantic-only facing country. Spain, Italy, all of the other big uh, Southern European countries uh, have, Europe, have Mediterranean ports and therefore had ways of trading via the Silk Road for a very long time, going back, you know, at least until Roman times uh, with, with China and, and with Asia, right? But the Portuguese didn't. Uh, they were Mediterranean facing. And so Muslims take over the Middle East. There's nothing coming that way. Portugal under the Aviz dynasty is a very new kingdom uh, and uh, very, very weak and fragile militarily what we what I'm going to call in a telegraphic way the Spaniards they were Castile and Aragon and various other places all wanted to conquer Portugal and to reabsorb it into under their uh, uh, um, uh, uh, authority right and Portugal had to figure something out in order to survive and what, what their game plan became was Mansa Musa and Mali let's find the way to Mali by sea and this is setting everything in motion. And to be, you know, I could spend another hour just on this stuff, but to explain, uh, to give you another sort of insight into why this is so pivotal and so important to understanding um, modernity is that because, so Prince Henry the Navigator, a figure that many of you will have heard of or probably familiar with to some extent, becomes the chief patron of these um, exploratory efforts. And he starts in the 1430s and continues 
devotedly at great expense and at political risk to himself until his death in the 1460s to find the gold in Africa to, by sponsoring maritime voyages down the coast of Africa. He dies in the four, early 1460s, I think 1462. His successors continue this until 1471, when lo and behold, the Portuguese finally arrive on the coast of what is presently known as Ghana, and they don't discover Mali's gold there, but it turns out Ghana is also fabulously rich in gold. And so the Portuguese set up a trading station, uh, and a, 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 a fortified trading station uh, in Ghana, which was built on a large scale and it's incredibly robust and still survives to this day, called Elmina, the mine. The Ghanaians call it a castle, right? Um, most people think it's about slavery. It became a place for the trade in slaves, but only much later, right? It was built as a gold trading center. The Portuguese didn't come and conquer anybody in Africa. They set up a trading station, negotiated with the local kingdoms of that part of what coastal Ghana, and they build this giant castle there to facilitate this. The Spaniards, by the way, much more powerful, much richer than the Portuguese, get wind of this. And they sent a naval fleet down the coast of West Africa to try in a major battle that none of you have ever heard of, I'm willing to bet. In a major battle, this is world history all capitalized, right? The Spaniards sent a major fleet down the coast of West Africa well before Columbus crossed the Atlantic to try to seize Elmina from the Portuguese. The Portuguese had intelligence about this Although much smaller and weaker, they lay in ambush in coves off the coast of West Africa, and they sink the Spanish fleet. It is after that point that they build the fort at Elmina that we call this castle. Right, but why, why my insistence on this pivotal um, characteristic, historically speaking, for all of this? Because it is only at this point that the Spanish decide to sponsor Columbus. Columbus had been all over Europe trying to get people to various crowns to sponsor him in his eccentric, by the standards of the time, desire to prove that you could get to Japan by going west, right? Um, he had been laughed out of various places. You know, we have other problems. You know, go ahead and try it. If you can make it, come back and let us know. You know, that sort of thing. Um, now that the Portuguese had become rich in trading, and rich is the right word, within three years of building a fort at Almina, a third of the Sp of Portuguese crown's entire revenue consisted of trade with Almina. A third, right? This is, this is what puts Portugal on the map in Europe and which enables Portugal to begin funding the people who eventually became famous as the avatars of the age of, of exploration, the people like Dagama who reach India, right? It is Elmina that pays for all of that stuff. It is the search for gold in Africa, which, which sort of um, lights the path that leads to all of this, right? Uh, and which also, importantly, creates the opportunity that leads to Columbus's discovery of America. How did that happen? Why did that happen? This happens because the Spanish and the Portuguese alike in this era shared a kind of primitive um, notion of uh, geology and of geography in which they assumed that since the Portuguese had discovered gold at 
a certain sort of breadth of latitudes in the tropics, then this must have meant mm -hmm. that the secret to finding gold was looking in that same band of latitudes. Mm -hmm. And so, so the Spanish, uh, you know, Catherine and um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, anyway, the, the, the Los Reyes Católicos, the Spanish, um, uh, the Castile and Aragon, Ferdinand. Ferdinand uh, and Isabel. Sorry? Isabel. And yes, Isabella and Ferdinand, excuse me. Um, they uh, decide to fund Columbus on this notion that, yes, he's talking about Japan and China and all of this stuff. That's not really our primary concern. Great if he finds those places. In the meantime, as he, as he sets off into kind of subtropical oceans, uh, have him look for gold. And we know from Columbus's um, diaries that from the very first day on land, every single day, there's a notation about what evidence of gold he had found. Um, anyway, so... I've only got about I you I assume you want me to leave a few minutes for questions right uh yeah okay so I'm gonna go for another five minutes that means another 400 years in five minutes yeah. <laughs> um the, so, so the Portuguese don't rush off to Asia. The story we've all be, been given to believe is that Asia, 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 Asia. 1471, they discover gold that that in Elmina. Right, the Portuguese spend the next thirty years not trying to get to Asia. How do you explain that? The Portuguese spend the next thirty years completely obsessed with exploring this same notion of a of a latitudinal distribution of gold. We're in Africa, this continent that modern histories tell us the Europeans simply wanted to figure out a way to get around it. The Portuguese are spending thirty years, in effect, completely obsessed with connecting with Africa for the purposes of discovering more gold. And as they do this, they, 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 they land in an island that becomes the next big pivot of this history called Sao Tome, which is situated almost exactly on the equator. It's volcanic, it's tropical, obviously, it has heavy seasonal rains, and because it is volcanic, it has very rich soils. The Portuguese had just begun experimenting with planting, in fact, Henry the Navigator was a player in this, planting sugar cane in places like Madeira and, and other islands very far to the north in the Atlantic with limited success. They were making good money in it, but it wasn't anything like what it would become. Someone discovers uh, that if you plant sugar cane in the volcanic soils of equatorial Sao Tome, sugar grows like firecrackers. It just, it just takes off, right? Um, the only problem with sugar is nobody wants to do the labor of growing sugar, right? And that has been true and remains true everywhere in history that sugarcane has been cultivated commercially. It has been associated with slavery or with forced labor, right? That remains true in the United States today, migrant labor being terribly abused in the few places that sugarcane get, still gets grown here. It's true in Haiti, the Bahamas. Dominican Republic, everywhere from ancient times until now. And the reasons for that is sugar has to be grown to be profitable in muddy, heavily irrigated, constantly um, fertilized tropical soil where the plants are 
the canes planted densely together in rows and has to be de-weeded and harvested. And sugarcane leaves are long and razor-like. And so you're tramping about in these rows of sugarcane leaves in uh, insect-infested tropical environments, getting deadly diseases and getting sliced up all the time. And so the Portuguese then begin to try to source slave labor from the nearby continental Africa, places like the Kingdom of Benin in present-day Nigeria, and subsequent to that in the Congo, Congo with a K, another empire, very highly achieved empire in Central Africa, right? The Benin, Benin sells them slaves initially, and then decides they don't want to be in this business anymore. Uh, and so this turn, sets the, the Portuguese off on a prolonged and for the Portuguese, very uh, profitable connection with Congo, buying slaves who were war victims or, or captives that the Congo had uh, obtained through a conquest of neighboring peoples, right? Um, and this is the, where the birth of this absolutely pivotal, pivotal, I think, most important of all economic innovations or set of economic innovations of the modern age takes place, right there on Sao Tome. Begin to see the organization of plantation agriculture using chattel slavery, which we need to pause to understand uh, briefly uh, for the first time. Chattel slavery in this working definition is the perpetual meaning transgenerational enslavement of people as if they were beasts of <clears throat> on a racial basis. This uh, slavery has been everywhere pretty much in world history at one time or another. And in fact, even then, in this moment we're talking about, still existed in Europe, but chattel slavery was a new institution, as I've just described it. And chattel slavery has its proof, has its, 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 its invented and refined on Sao Tome, incredibly profitable proof of, uh, of concept there. Chattel slavery shows that it's even more profitable than gold trade in a very brief period of time. And then something extraordinary happened by another kind of, by an incredible accident. The Portuguese are trying not to get to Asia still, but trying to figure out how to connect quickly to other parts of Africa, Africa being a vast continent, right? Instead of hugging the coast, they copied Arab navigational techniques and begin to tack down the coastline of Africa as you're tacking, I'm drawing these triangles here, farther and further to the west to get further south, right? By cutting back, right? Uh, they bump into Brazil. The Portuguese were not looking, Spanish, Columbus was trying to find other stuff. The Portuguese were not trying to find any other place. They bump into Brazil and, and very quickly you see the transplanting of this industry, these two new institutions of plantation agriculture from Sao, tiny Sao Tome uh, to Brazil. Uh, and this uh, by, so this is in uh, 1501, by 1570, the Br Portuguese went through a long period, disastrous from the perspective of the Native American population of Brazil, but went through a long period of trying to confine Native Americans in Brazil uh, to basically prison camps to make them work in chattel slavery conditions for the production of sugar. And it just didn't work because the, the natives could, could, uh, by egress, they could sneak off, and it's hard to tell one from the Portuguese perspective, one of them from another one, right? They all look kind of similar to the Portuguese. How do we know which is the escaped guy, uh, right? And um, moreover, the and most importantly, the 
the natives were dying of European diseases for on an enormous scale for lack of any uh, uh, native uh, uh, immunity, right? Um, and so by 1565, 1570, the Portuguese had completely replaced um, natives uh, in plantation agriculture with Africans. And this is the takeoff of the West. This is the creation of the West. By 1630, um, Portugal had made more money from plantation agriculture and slavery in Brazil than Spain had made in conquest in places like uh, uh, the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire, parting off enormous amounts of gold and silver. These are famous stories we all learned, right? We didn't learn the Brazil plantation story. The, the, the conquest story, as I think people of our age or ages have been taught, is it has been um, horribly able for Europeans to tell these stories you know, pridefully, like, Look at this, a small group of Europeans, you know, galloped off into the highlands of this or that place and were able to conquer an enormous empire because we Europeans are superior in knowledge and technique and technology and, and virtue, right? We have Jesus and they don't, right? Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, by 1630, the, Bra the Portuguese had made more in Brazil from the institutions that, uh, that I described to you, chattel and plantation labor, than the Spaniards had made through conquest. In 1630, the English get into the game. They take over the island of Barbados, which at the time was uninhabited. They hire some uh, Dutch who were part of Portugal uh, at the time, part of Spain at the uh, Spain and Portugal refused at the time. The Dutch were uh, caught, were basically sub, uh, subjects of, of Spain. They hire some Dutch from Brazil uh, and slaves from Brazil. The slaves were specialized in their sugar plantation labor. They bring them to Barbados. And by uh, the end of that century, little tiny Barbados, one third the size in terms of surface area of the city of Los Angeles, had earned more money for England than all the Spanish conquests had earned uh, in terms of gold and silver carted off in a special class of ships that needed to be built for that kind of booty called galleons, right? Um, this is what this and not India is what makes England and subsequent soon thereafter Britain an imperial power. Britain talks about the British talk about India, India, India. India became important to Britain. I am not pretending otherwise. But British Empire is born in chattel slavery and in a plantation, and it starts in Barbados. And Barbados gives England the wherewithal to fight and eventually to beat the Spanish in terms of naval um, power. Uh, and to take over Spain uh, and to do a whole variety of other things. It puts England and then Britain on the map as an imperial power. That's the start. And to end here, uh, uh, you know, the book has all of the economic and, and, and uh, statistical data uh, necessary to support these arguments, but there's an anecdotal way to make, to, to bring this home to you, right? Um, in 1791, um, the, 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 the Africans who were enslaved in uh, Saint-Domingue, uh, in plantation agriculture, a system that in a very planned and conscious way rubbed people out, meaning worked them to death by design in the space of about five years. Uh, it was cheaper to work people to death and replace them than it was to even introduce the most rudimentary uh, sort of elements of 
if these were animals, one would call husbandry, right? There was no husbandry. Just work them to death and replace them, right? Uh, the Africans who were subjected to this kind of work regime in Saint-Domingue rose up in a revolution. Uh, one of you is the roommate of Adam Hochschild, who I actually saw uh, not so long ago uh, at a conference in California, uh, who I've known for many years. He's written about this himself. Uh, anyway, um, uh, the, the Africans, and they're Africans because you don't survive long enough on the plantation to forge a new culture or a new identity. Their people are brought from different parts of Africa by design to prevent them from rebelling, and they rebel anyway. And they end up defeating Napoleon. And when they defeat Napoleon, you have to listen carefully. So you can, you want to read the book, you'll see the economic data, right? But just to let you know how big this was, when they defeat Napoleon, the Spaniards say, who occupy the other two thirds of Hispaniola, we're not going to let these niggers go. This is too valuable. We got to hold on to this. Are you kidding me? This is the one of the greatest opportunities in history. We're, we're going to take, we, we at least have a base here already. We're going to take them over. The Africans defeat the Spanish, then the English, who by this time own and control Jamaica, which is enormously profitable and very close by, say, no, 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 no. We're not going to let these Africans triumph in, in Saint-Domingue. We have to take this over. This is our big opportunity, right? The richest colony in the history of history, right? We're going to take this over, right? The Africans defeat the British. The British lose more troops trying to hold on to Saint-Domingue than they lost in the American Revolution, a fact which certainly none of you have ever seen before, <laughs> right? And then what happens? Napoleon comes again. He sends the largest fleet that in, up until that point in time had ever been sent across the Atlantic to try once more to conquer, to reconquer Saint-Domingue, and he is defeated. And this all but bankrupts France to the point where France decides that it has to sell the Louisiana Purchase to Thomas Jefferson's government for $15 million, and overnight, this doubles the size of the United States. It sets in motion um, uh, the birth of a continental power and what is called the second great migration, meaning, or a second slavery, meaning the trans migration, forced transmigration of slaves out of the so-called old south of the United States into the Mississippi Valley, where they are put to work growing cotton on a scale that completely transforms the economy of the United States makes puts it on a path to becoming the richest country in the world and makes the industrial revolution possible why does it make the industrial revolution possible because the story of the industrial revolution we are told is simply one of great english ingenuity or british ingenuity these some characters in lancashire just figure out how to organize labor under one big roof and to give people specialized tasks and build some simple they're pretty simple actually machines you know, just monitor them and make everybody weave, right? What were they weaving? They were weaving cotton grown by American slaves. The product of these two institutions that were born on Sao Tome in the 1490s, right? At a time when we are told the whole ball of wax was finding a way to Asia, when in fact, the ball of wax was about training Africa to the purposes of a nascent West, 
And this remained the case all the way into the 19th century, uh, where I'm going to end just here. Well, Howard, thank you so much for coming on. It was really spectacular. You're welcome, Kent. I'm, I'm glad that you're helping me to uh, uh, observe time discipline, because I really do need to go and, and sort of <laughs> stuff something in my mouth and then get to a meeting really quickly. But um, thanks been, a lot. It's been a pleasure Great. talking you. to you guys and um, seeing you uh, all and hearing your stories, too. And I appreciate your interest. OK, take care. See you. Thank you. That was Howard French. He is a professor of journalism at Columbia University and a former New York Times bureau chief for the Caribbean and Central America, for West and Central Africa, and for Tokyo and Shanghai. His book is titled Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471, to the Second World War. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.